Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hey, everybody. My name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is March the 27th, 1985. I am very impressed by that. That's officially a long damn time. And uh, <laughs> um, my, my home group is the Hermosa Beach Men's Stag. We meet on Monday nights in Hermosa Beach, California at 8.30. And uh, we like to think it's a very good group. It's going through a big transition now, as we all are. You know, this Zoom thing has really shaken the the foundation of everybody's program. Our South Bay Roundup is coming up this weekend. Uh, we have every year, and it's going to be a hybrid where it's going to be live and virtual. And my sponsor and I are going to do a couple of workshops on adapting to the change in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, this certainly has been a change. This is a, an interesting time in the history of the world, but certainly for the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe Zoom has given the world more access to Alcoholics Anonymous than it has ever had. And that this is a net positive thing. But it sure has shaken things up, hadn't it? You know, there's people out there that I hate Zoom. The hell with this Zoom thing. I'm not going to do Zoom. And and then there's other people like me. You know, at first, I was resistant. You know, I've always been, in, in 36 years I've been around, I've never drifted away from AA. I've always been around various levels of involvement, but I, I've never drifted away. I, I, I love AA. I really enjoy it. So, yeah, you know, I mean, and now, within a week, when it, the meetings got shut down over here in March of last year, we were on Zoom. You know, the young guys stepped up and said, we have the technology. Let's do this thing. And within a week, we were on Zoom. And at first, it was difficult, you know, and then you started getting used to it. And now, now it's like, God, you go to a meeting, you got to get up and put clothes on, walk all the way out to the car, drive all the way the hell down to that goddamn place, sit there with all those stinky people, and then drive all the way home. It's a three or four hour ordeal, you know. It, some of the meetings you go to now that have been on Zoom, it's been a year and a half, right? It's been a long time. Some of the meetings you go on there, it's like a, a convalescent home. There's all these people on there that are 180 years old and they've been sober for 70 or 80 years. And they're just hanging out doing meetings all day. You get on there 20 minutes early and they're just blabbing away. I mean, it's it's just amazing. You know, what it, the, the access it's given people that have difficulty with access, you know? Isn't that wonderful? I think it's been really cool. It's been a, it's a really interesting thing. So today I'm supposed to talk to you about step 12. Um, I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 37 years old. I was on my second marriage. I had a second set of two children. Uh, my daughter was three years old and my son was four months old. And, uh, and I ended up, after a long run, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was in bad shape. 
four and a half years ago, uh, almost five now, I had a liver transplant. 30 plus years of sobriety and alcoholism almost killed me. But I walked into AA at 37 and I had cirrhosis pretty bad. As it turned out, it was worse than I thought. Um, I had hepatitis C from all the drug use and stuff over the years. And, uh, um, and I went through a period of sobriety of being quite ill, I almost died. And I got very fortunate and got a liver transplant. So when I walked in here, I was in bad physical shape. I was pretty beat up. And like most of us, I was emotionally drained. And little did I know that this, that was my bottom, you know, that it's so far. I went into a recovery program for 35 days and I got out of there and I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. And two things happened to me that are just pure luck when that happened. The first one's probably the most important. I just liked it. <laughs> it's like, it isn't everybody's story, you know? I just, I'm one of those people, I, it, it was like coming home. You can only put that label on it after the fact when you've thought about it for a while and you've had some experience. At the time, I felt uncomfortable. I didn't feel part of because I wasn't, you know? I mean, I didn't know anybody. And uh, I walked into that meeting on a Friday night in Hermosa Beach in the Alano Club there, and it was a meeting called The Gong Show. And a lot of people said that it really wasn't an AA meeting. It was Friday night and everybody's dressed up trying to hook up. You know, it was just, it was just chaos. And 36 years later, I can tell you that I find you all deliciously strange. And it's just, I, I've never lost my enthusiasm for it. I think you're just weird. And I'm an old hippie from the 60s and weird has always attracted me. You know, I kind of enjoy the chaos. I love all the crazy stories. The bad behavior it really intrigues me, especially when it's not me doing it, when I can look at you and watch you being weird and think, well, I'm glad it's not me. You know, because I think what's happening here is that we're all growing up now that we've gotten sober and we're a little late. And there's just an immense amount of bad behavior. There's character. It's a character defect center of the known universe, you know. I mean, the fellowship really is something to be survived. It's like, you know, you, you are just an odd coalition of people. And that night I stood in the back of the room and they, people were hooting and hollering and nicknames are flying around and their friends would get up to the podium to share and everybody start hooting at them. And I stood in the back of that room and I just started laughing. It was just funny. And I got the joke right away. I got it. And I drove home that night and I'm thinking, you know, this may not be so bad because it certainly was not what I was expecting. And, and I've never lost that enthusiasm for it, to being intrigued by it all. The second thing that happened is after a couple of weeks of banging around in AA after getting out of a recovery place for 35 days, I saw this guy and he seemed to be, he was around a lot, seemed like he knew everybody. And I walked up to him and asked for help. And the second lucky thing happened, he actually helped me, which, which doesn't always happen, you know? I mean, he said to me that that night, it was a nighttime at the Alano Club. And, and I, I said, I need one of these sponsor things, you know, will you help me? And he said, go home and read the doctor's opinion. That's the Roman numeral part before the real book starts, right? So 
you have to specify that because people usually will skip over it. And he said, read the doctor's opinion, make notes in the margin of what you agree with and what you don't, and be at my house Thursday at 5 o'clock, and we'll discuss it. So little gangster me, for some odd reason, I did my assignment, right? And I went home and I read that part of the book and I made my little notes and I showed up at the stranger's house at five o'clock on Thursday and he let me in and he sat me down in his living room. It was just the two of us alone together and he did not trust me that I'd read it and he had me read it to him out loud. Now, 36 years later, that's what I'm doing with people on Zoom, right? If I have to read War Fever Ran High in that New England town one more time, I think I'm going to blow my head off. But not much has changed. Now, I've picked up a few tricks over the years. But essentially what I do is we'll sit together and you read a page and I'll read a page and you read a page and I'll read a page. And whatever conversation needs to come up between the two of us will come up in that process. Now, him and I went through this process, and as it turns out, he and I have had the same sponsor for 36 years. I should have fired him several times, but he needs me now. And uh, him and I have traveled a good part of the world together, speaking and doing workshops and leading retreats and just in, in Alcoholics Anonymous over a good part of the world. Who knew that was going to happen? Neither one of us ever signed up for anything like that, but that's what, and, and we do sponsorship workshops. And rule number one when you're sponsoring people is make sure they read the book. Don't trust them. Read it with them. It'll probably help you out, right? Now, how do you stay engaged after three, four, and five decades being around an AA? Going to meetings? I don't think so. I think the whole sponsor thing, the dynamic of that is what keeps it fresh. Because every person that comes to me is something different. You're all different. You're all you, quite unique in your own way. Now, there's only one program in AA. There isn't a different program for every person. I hear that said sometimes. I understand what people mean by that, but that really isn't the case. There's one program, and we all know what it is. Even if we're not doing it, we know what it is. It's the 12 steps, right? The interesting thing about that is each individual has their own unique experience with that process. If somebody tells you about their spiritual awakening or spiritual experience, that's all really good. But what you really have faith in is that person because you haven't had that experience. That's each one of us in our own halting way attempts to describe with words what has happened to us, how we have been transformed. Now, some of us get asked a lot to go tell that story, you know, I mean, and, and I personally find like being able to sit here and talk to you about the 12th step is refreshing to me because I get tired of telling my story. And when you tell the story, the sober story, I've been a lot sober a lot longer than I was drinking and using. The sober story is really much more fascinating to me. You know, what has happened to me here since I've been awakened. And uh, the 12th step is the key component of that process. Nothing 
has changed me or affected me more than working with you and being worked with, right? Because when two people come together, not just one is helped, right? I used to think for a long time I was the teacher and you're the student. And finally, you pull your head out of your ass and you realize you have always been the teacher. I mean, when I ask for help, he sends me you. I think that's how it works. I think that's the essence of it, right? Now, since this pandemic, since this shutdown, I've been doing a lot of thinking. I've had an opportunity to sit and think a lot, which is always very healthy. Because whatever I come up with, I always agree with it. You know, it's it's a... Uh, and I started doing some writing. And what, what struck me and what I'd like to talk to you about today is it says in our book that the only thing that's going to keep us sober and maybe even beyond, way beyond that, give us a life with some purpose and direction and maybe some intimacy in our relationships. Give us a rich, full life, the thing that all of us are really looking for, some sense of satisfaction and peace and tranquility. The only thing that's going to do that is our spiritual condition and the maintenance of that. Jim, the car salesman, he failed to enhance his spiritual condition and he drank, you know? Over and over it talks about this. The main purpose of the book is to put us in touch with the power greater than ourselves that it can restore us to sanity and solve our problems for us. That all of our problems are in the realm of the material in the third dimension and the solution to all those problems is in the fourth dimension, the realm of the spirit. It talks about that a lot. Bill Wilson wrote about that incessantly in letters and all kinds of stuff and the grapevine, all of this. So I started thinking, do I have a spiritual condition? If I have one, how did I get it? And what's it made up of? What's the process? Okay, the 12 steps. But what is the, how does it, how does it work, really? What are the lessons we learn? What, what brings about transformation? What causes us to change our perception of the world around us? How, how practically, how does that happen? Now, when that man said to me, be at my house Thursday at 5 o'clock and read the doctor's opinion, and I went there and I read it to him out loud, he introduced me to this whole concept, and at, he wanted to know from me, do you believe that you are powerless over drugs and alcohol? Now, in my case... That was pretty easy for me to cop to because I was beat up pretty bad. You know, over the years I've taught you ask people that question and they're really not sure. And I think that's valid. They're not sure if they're powerless. Every once in a while you get somebody to get really honest with you, look you right in the eye and kind of grin. He knows he wants you, you want him to say yes. And he'll look at you and go, well, you know, sometimes, you know, but I'm not sure. So the very first principle, I think, of spiritual condition, the first pillar of spiritual condition is this idea of powerlessness, of personal powerlessness. Now, I've gone down some spiritual paths over the years into Buddhism and non-dualism and Taoism and some isms. You know, I've read some books and listened to some people and sat around with Ram Dass for a long time. And I love Alan Watts. And I, you know, as we do, you go on this spiritual search and any mystical practice that you run into talks about this, not just AA, this idea of personal powerlessness, that something else is running the show. Now, I can cop to the drugs and alcohol, but 
the way I live my life, when you look at it, the way I live my life is evidently what I believe is that things outside myself need to be different in order for me to be okay. And they don't change, and I suffer because of that. In AA, we talk a lot about acceptance, right? You need to accept things. Well, you know, what do you, good, that's a good idea, but how do you do that? And what I believe is that the, the offshoot of this understanding of how powerless I am is acceptance. If I really get at a gut level or a visceral level how, how individually powerless I am over pretty much everything, then acceptance just happens. So I think the problem we have is we don't think we're powerless. Like I talk to you incessantly about how if you were just a little bit different, the two of us would be a hell of a lot happier. And you absolutely insist upon living your own life and it pisses me off at my core, right? And, uh, and I suffer. I've lost complete control over the geopolitical situation in the world. Look at it. It's a mess. A few months ago, I had to turn off the TV just to save my sanity, you know? Because I think it should be different, and it's not. And I suffer, right? Now, acceptance doesn't mean that I have to like it, but I have to accept it. And the root of that is this, I, I just don't believe I'm powerless. I'm a self-reliance guy. I assert myself, and I, things need to be different. And some years ago, I, I stepped back and looked at this, and God, you know, if, if you need to be different in order for me to be okay, there really is no hope. Right? So powerlessness seems to be the first pillar of spiritual condition. Now, if I can grasp just the drugs and alcohol part, then the second step becomes operational. Now, some people will tell you that in the second step, you have to have a God in order to do AA. I don't think that's true. All you really need to know about God is it's not you, right? All I really need to know is that it's not me. The, the world out there is operating, and it seems to be just unfolding without any input from me whatsoever. But somehow I've gotten this idea that it needs to be different in order for me to be okay. And it just isn't. So something else, I mean, every fall, the leaves fall off the trees, and in the spring, they come back. Now, you don't see the trees trying to hold on to the leaves when they fall off, you know. There seems to be a synergy about the way things operate with people and anything in nature, and it seems to operate on its own. Maybe I should look into tapping into that. Wilson wrote about this a lot. And what he talked about in the second step is being open-minded. Not, in that, not necessarily believing in anything, just understanding that you're not running the show. And this seems to have worked for me. Now, if I can do that, if I realize I need to be restored to some kind of sanity, and a logical thought progression is there must be a power greater than myself, we better hope so. And as I found out late years later, there are a lot of powers that are greater than me. There is a plethora of powers that are much stronger than me. You know, and uh, so it's been an, e an easier transition as time has gone on, just accepting the reality of that. If I can do that, the third step becomes operational. Now, the third step's interesting. It says that I'm going to turn my life and will over. I'm going to make a decision to turn my life and will over to clearly what already has it anyway, right? <laughs> I think it was nice of them to lead me to believe that I actually have some say in the matter, Right. Well, I've been withholding myself from the totality of all things long enough now. I'm going to acquiesce and allow you to take me. Thank you very much. Where's my trophy? Right?
and we had these long, windy talks about the difference between my will and God's will. My little ego that presented itself at about two and a half years old, every human being has one, right? It's not the enemy. It's not some alien creature that's invaded us, right? It doesn't need to be killed, destroyed, smashed, or destroyed. It's not trying to kill me. It needs me for transportation, right? It thinks it's me, and I think it's me too. Well, that little ego loves the idea of us having a battle of wills with the power that drives the entire universe. How could that possibly even be plausible that that could occur? So this, this third step, turning it over. We have windy discussions about the difference between my will and God's will. And I think what God's will is, clearly to me, what God's will is, is what's happening right now. What could it possibly, what other thing could it possibly be? And we want the right now to be different. So we start speculating there must be a different God's will. We have so much trouble with this that we create fantasy lands where someday we're going to end up in this place, we're going to visit all of our relatives, everything's going to be perfect, and it's going to be, you know, because the ego just can't imagine itself not existing, and it fears death, and we create all this stuff, when what we have right now is literally heaven on earth. It's all a matter of perception. So what life and will is the third step talking about? It's the inventory, isn't it? The end result of living a life with seeming power. I'm filled with resentment. I've got fears and broken sexual relationships. That's what I bring to you, the chaos of my life. And I write that down, and I share it with this guy, this stranger that I met and lit, sitting in his living room. And, uh, um, and with this higher power, whatever it might be, we get so hung up in the concepts that we, we miss the experience of it. And myself, maybe for the first time in my life, I unload all this stuff. Here's my life. I'm pooped. You take it. Now, what's the lesson we learn in this process in the fourth and fifth step? If you want to do a third step and turn things over, do four and five. That's how it works, right? What do we learn from that? The big lesson, the big lesson, pillar number two in spiritual condition. I have to quit blaming other people and institutions for my problems. Doesn't mean they're not, they're innocent. But I have to stop the blaming, because if they need to be different in order for me to be okay, that's never going to happen. There'll never be any I have to stop the blaming. High school is over. It's time for little Bill to take responsibility for his own life and stop the blaming. Now, this is going to take a few years, because <laughs> it's so ingrained in me. It's a large part of who I think I am, is who I hate and how I've been wronged. But I'm going to get it now. I'm going to part, and I'm going to have to stop the blaming about this. Sponsors are really good at helping us do this. My sponsor told me something. He says, "My job is to guide you through the process of the twelve steps that you might have some kind of spiritual awakening. Maybe you'll never drink ever again." Now, I'd be happy to sit here and listen to you share about what you think your problems are, so that you will not share about them in the meetings. The meetings are for recovery from alcoholism, not about how your day went. And I told him, down there at that Alano Club, they're breaking that rule right and left. Should we go tell them? And he says, no. He says, AA is a safe place. You can pretty much do whatever you want. I'm just describing to you my Alcoholics Anonymous. Another lucky thing. I ran into a guy that hasn't bought into this weird thing that we don't express opinions or give advice. I'm a newcomer in AA. I need some good advice. 
Yeah. You don't need to really make a list of your character defects now that you're going to stop blaming people and you realize how powerless you are. They will come and visit you with alarming regularity. You know, they'll just show up. And you can't, you can't justify it. You'll keep trying to justify it and blame other people, but you know now this has got to end. And the growing up process is going to take a while, right? I mean, this is, this is just, uh, it's painful. Everybody in AA gets to wear the clown suit. I keep mine in the closet, keep it dusted off, you know, because every so often you got, it's been a little while, but every so often you put it back on with the big shoes and the nose and you just behave badly, you know? I mean, we look across the room and somebody's looking at, I'm the guy that walks into the room and if you're looking at me, it's what the hell are you looking at? And then if you don't look at me, I'm heartbroken. And there's no middle ground. There are not levels of, of matter of fact, the depth of my shallowness knows no bound. The switch is either on or it's off. There's not striations of emotional development here. I'm emotionally immature. That's my problem. We have a tendency to say, well, it's my alcoholism. No, you're just a whiny little bitch. You know, that's exactly what it is. Matter of fact, you know, if in our men's stag, if some guy comes in there and starts complaining about his girlfriend or his wife, we start clapping till he stops. You know, it's like, it's just... It can be pretty painful, but we don't want to hear about your girlfriend. We don't want to hear about your, you know, we don't want to hear about that. We want to hear about you. What's your behavior? What's going on with you? And then we get into the ninth step. You know, the mechanism for ridding ourselves of, of resentments is the amends process. That's how you really do it. It's not a matter, you know, like, how do you forgive? How do you forgive? You don't just forgive. Forgiveness happens. Forgiveness happens after some action that we take, the work of it. And this is where the transformation really begins. When I go to, in the ninth step, when I go to somebody that I've always blamed for my problems, and you want me to go to these people and say, I'm sorry, and I do not want to do this. This makes no sense to me, and it, it scares me. I don't want to do this, but I do it. This is where people really stop at the ninth step, right? Like you'll hear some people sometimes say, how do you meditate, man? I've been med I've been trying to meditate for years. I can't shut my head off. Question number one, have you made the amends? Now, I don't care how long you're sober. Have you made the amends? The answer is usually no. You, know, you want to quiet your mind? Clean up the past. I think that's how it works. It's certainly how it's worked for me. I mean, my mind's busy enough as it is, but I'm still, I'm still chewing on old resentments back from grade school and high school and you know, those marriages and stuff, there's, that's all, that takes up a lot of consciousness. If I put that to sleep, that creates more space. And when I go to somebody I don't ever want to see again, and I look them right in the eye, and I say the words that need to be said, when I turn and walk away from that experience, I am changed right then and there, no waiting. No waiting. This is a cathartic experience. The action of making the amends will change you as a person. It's more than just the experience of the moment. It People will say, you've been your own worst enemy. Put it at the top of your amends list. That'll pretty much kill you. If you really want to make amends to yourself, put yourself at the bottom of the list. By the time you get there, you'll have some self-esteem. That's what's happened to me. I started feeling like a man. I started feeling better about myself. You know, the first couple were hard. Then I got the ball rolling. I thought, man, this needs to happen. You know, my God, 
It's been me all this time. What a shock to the system that is, right? I heard a speaker not too long ago. He goes, I couldn't believe how wrong I had been all that time. You know, it's like it's pretty stunning, you know. I mean, when you're self-centered, it seems real, you know. People say, well, do you think you're the center of the universe? And you kind of want to you say no because it doesn't sound, but really, yes, you do. You know, everything's personal. And what's the big lesson in the ninth step? The third pillar of spiritual condition. What's the big lesson? Nothing is ever personal. Nothing was ever personal. It was never personal. People were just doing what they do, and I happen to be in the blast radius of their behavior. And sometimes you're in the blast radius of mine. Am I doing it specifically to you? No, you're just the next victim in line. I'm just doing what I do. Now, that's a shock to the system. When these three, three things come together, powerless, no more blaming. That's off the table now. You can't know more of that. And three, you begin to realize nothing was ever personal, and you took it all personal. That's the source of all the suffering in my life. When you realize this, this is the collapse of the egoic structure of who you think you are. I mean, my, my, a large part of my personality is made up of who I blame and how I take things personal. Oh, poor me, you know, and, and all of this. It, and it begins to fall apart. This is a painful process. When you really realize, when it becomes very apparent that whenever I'm disturbed, it's always me. That is a hard pill to swallow because I've spent an immense amount of my time blaming you for all of it. On my first inventory was the entire federal government and specifically the Department of Motor Vehicles. You know, I mean, who are they to tell me whether I can drive or not? What the hell? You know, I'm oppressed. And don't you hear that around the world right now? Everybody's screaming about individual rights and it's completely forgotten about our common welfare should come first, don't you think? You know, I mean, you hear that every, it's not just AA, it's everywhere. The selfishness and self-centeredness, it just abounds in human nature. And when you're on a spiritual path in order to save your own life, you're forced to look at this stuff. You're forced to look at what the motivation is. You're forced to look at what's inside. What's the driving force here? One through nine is about 10% of the program. It's just the bare beginning. It's, it's sober 101. It's the first semester. 10%. 10, 11, and 12 is 90%. It's where we live. 10, 11, and 12 is the real work in AA. 1 through 9 is not the work. This is just preparatory to prepare us for the work, for the real work. And if you've been touched and your life has been awakened, if you've been changed, if you've had this transformation, you can't not do this work. You can't not do it. You're driven to do it. It's, it's not that difficult. It can be painful. And 10 is the fourth pillar of spiritual condition. What is that? Self-awareness. You become self-aware as compared to self-obsessed. You develop the skill of the watcher where you can watch yourself move through life. You know? You're not a victim anymore. When I step on your foot, I turn around and say, I'm sorry. I don't have to go to the Alano Club and go to a noon meeting and share it with 15 people, write three pages of inventory, call my sponsor for a week or two, and then go track you down and say, I'm sorry. I get it now. I get it. It's always me. 
You know, is it always my fault? Not necessarily, but whenever I'm disturbed, it's me. There's something I'm not accepting. Doesn't mean things are, are good or whatever, but I, 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 it's no longer am I this victim. I get it now. I'm awake now. And I can tell you something, self-awareness without humor is depression. It's like, when you really see this, when you look at yourself and you say to yourself, is it really that bad? And the answer is yes, <laughs> that is painful. And we do a wonderful job in Alcoholics Anonymous of helping each other laugh at who we think we are. I mean, when you get into that healthy crowd of people that are actually doing this work, it's funny making fun of yourself and your friends around you because we're all victims of who we believe we are. And we could probably not be more wrong in what we think or who we think we are, right? The 11th step, an 11th step, you can watch yourself think. This is a big deal. This is a game-changing experience. In meditation, you can sit quietly and focus on the breath going in and out of your nose. And the little ego, the two-and-a-half-year-old, it does not like being in the present moment. There is nothing for it to do there. So it moves away from the breath. It moves away from the present moment, and it goes into the future or the past so it can think about stuff and work on stuff. And you notice that it has wandered away, right? You notice that, and you gently bring it back to the breath. This is absolute conclusive proof that who we are is not our thinking mind. This changes the entire game, right? Now, AA is not good psychotherapy, right? There's good psychotherapy. AA is not that. AA is literally that this spiritual path is about getting out of self, getting out of there, stepping outside of it, looking back and observing it. Not about analyzing it, breaking it down, and finding the triggers and setting the boundaries. Now, that might be valid for other things. I don't know. I've done a lot of therapy in my days in the mental institutions that I was in and stuff. In AA, I haven't done that. In AA, they're not really that concerned about how I feel and what I think about how I feel, right? I'm not really that concerned about that with you. I will listen to you, but I know what's going to happen if you stick with this process you will step outside that and see the futility of living in there. If you ever catch yourself alone in a room thinking about your problems, get the hell out of the room. Nothing positive will ever come from that experience. You know, you're thinking about you, and that's usually not a very healthy situation for really any human being, I think. But I can finally now stop working on myself. I'm just feeding the beast, right? I'm just feeding the beast when I do that. It's not about me. It's never been about me. It's not about me at all. What is it about? It's about you. It's about you. This brings me to the 12th step. It took me a while to get there. But we're, now we're talking about what is the mechanism that brings about all of this awakening and stuff that I'm talking about. As I look back over my time, my sponsor raised me in Alcoholics Anonymous. There was no question as to whether I was going to sponsor people or not. He never even told me that's what's going to happen, other than the fact that that was why he was doing what he was doing with me. And I grew up in that kind of an environment here in Southern California. In my home group, there's a big ethic of sponsorship. 
It's all about that. This is what we do. When I sit in that room, there's my sponsor and me, and then the guys I sponsor and the guys they sponsor and the guys they sponsor. But in our group, there is no hierarchy. Uh, I used to think there was a hierarchy and I wanted to be part of that. The first 10 years I was sober, I worked diligently to make a name for myself in an anonymous organization. It's like, I don't know what that is, but it's pretty weird. And when you get into the hierarchy, there's people waiting there for you and they're laughing at you because they know you think there's a hierarchy and they're it. And there is no hierarchy in Alcoholics Anonymous. In some groups, there's hierarchies. But I started working with you at a year sober. I was making amends and I started sponsoring people at a year sober and I've never stopped. It's always been told to me, and I believe hardly that is my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I do is I sponsor people. And I am sponsored, right? Now, what happens when that? All of us can list our character defects. They're pretty obvious. Most of them are pretty obvious, you know? And, uh, uh, oh, geez, I've run out of time. But anyway, most of them are pretty obvious. You can see what they are. But what about the parts of us that are missing? Because what really happened to us is that we stopped growing up emotionally when we started getting loaded. We stopped. So what, are, what, are mis what never developed in me? I don't even know it's not there. And the primary thing that was missing in me is the fifth pillar of spiritual condition, compassion. Selfish and self-centered people do not have empathy. They don't have compassion. I can't really, the only time I'm concerned about how you feel is when how you feel impacts me. Oh my God, she's all pissy. We got to get her happy or it's going to be a miserable day. It's that kind. Of, that's the depth of my compassion, my empathy. And I don't know this. I'm not aware of this. This is only in hindsight that you see this. And I started sponsoring you. And I wanted to look good by doing that. I wanted devotees. I wanted followers, right? So my motivation for working with you was very impure. But it didn't seem to matter because what happened? I fell in love with you. I started caring about you. I started exercising the compassion muscle. I had to learn how to listen to you so that I could help you, right? I had to guide you through the steps. I had, you invited me into your life. I became an important person in your life. The first time somebody looked at me with respect in their eyes, I did not know what that was. I'd never seen it before, right? This started having an impact on me. You invited me into the hospital when you were having your babies because I was important to you. And you wanted me there to celebrate this life change in you. And it broke my heart. It broke it open, right? I began to change. I began to evolve. And you only see that looking backward. You only start realizing that. When somebody was dying, you wanted me there to be with you. And I'd never seen that before. I'd never experienced that before. I had a guy that whose son died of leukemia at nine years old, it tore me up. I mean, you don't know that you can walk into those kind of situations until you do it, right? Both my parents passed away, and I took care of them and changed their diapers and stuff. That had a profound impact on me. These people that I tortured as I was growing up, we healed our relationship together, and in the end, I was changing their diapers and holding them and loving them, and I healed with my father. That changes you, right? So compassion is the foundation stone, and the 12th step is the mechanism that drives all of this. Should everybody sponsor? There's nothing else to do. Everything else is an activity. This is the real action. Now, some years ago, 
I started doing fifth steps, doing my inventory with some of the guys I sponsored to break down the hierarchy thing. Because there can be a power trip in being the sponsor with all your sponsees around you. And sometimes that's how it is. Sometimes my job is to be your teacher. You know, sometimes I'm a father figure. Something God knows I've become a grandfather figure now. You know, there's a lot of kids that come in now, Alcoholics Anonymous, that never had a father figure, and they will attach themselves to you. Let that happen. They'll grow up and they'll evolve. They evolve like we all do. They grow up and they drift off, and then they become a father figure for someone else. And I've been around long enough now to actually see that happen. You know, there's some guys I've sponsored for 25 and 30 years, and they are family members. We are family. They have spiritual consent to tell me when I'm full of shit. You know, I mean, I, I was in the hospital for months in the transplant, and, and all the love that came to me from there, sometimes it's hard to receive the love. Have you ever had that experience where you, some, something inside you tells you that you don't deserve it? Something inside me always tells me, Bill, you're full of shit again. And today I can tell you unequivocally, that is not true. <laughs> this is it. This is what you see. There is, I'm pretty transparent now with all the flaws that go along with that. You know, what my default mode is arrogance. You might have noticed a little bit that I get a little preachy. I have a tendency to lecture. Well, what are you going to do? You know, it's better than it used to be, but it's still there. You know, I mean, I am who I am. And people talk a lot about self-love. How do you, how do you learn to, you got to learn to love yourself before you can love others. What, who came up with that bullshit? You know how it really works? You pretend you love other people and you, pretty soon you'll start feeling better about yourself. You can't help it, you know? People, look, you stop and think about this. I've been to a, a mental institution twice, locked down, barbed wire on top of the fence mental institution. And I've been married three times, and people ask me for relationship advice. <laughs> I give it to them. I say, hell, you can't hurt them. They're an AA, you know? I mean, it's like the inmates literally are running the asylum. We are the counselors, right? I mean, we are the counselors. Us, these flawed creatures, us. You know what we have? We have wisdom, you and I. You know what wisdom is? Is experience, number one, and enough intellect to be able to express the experience. And we're all storytellers. Some of us are speaker guys like me, but all of us are storytellers. When we sit down with each other, we tell each other our stories. And what, are, what is in that? Wisdom, wisdom. We have survived the wars. We're not dead. We made it through to the other side, and we have been awakened right? We have a lot to offer each other, and we have a lot to offer the world. I believe that. There are some people that have said that, uh, that Alcoholics Anonymous is the single most significant social movement of the 20th century. I have a tendency to believe that. You know, if more people lived like us, I think the world would be a better place. And God knows we got flaws, you know? I mean, God knows you, he's trying to have meetings and tell everybody to wear a mask, you know, to fight that war, you know, fight that war, you know? It's like, I had to catch myself the other day. I was going to go off on this guy in all my spirit, and I caught myself, and I went and sat in my chair and shut my mouth. Because I'll tell you something. Alcoholics Anonymous should be a safe place, and it's part of my job to keep it that way and keep that outside stuff out of the meetings. You know, this is where we come for refuge. This is a safe place. Now, I'll leave you with this one final thought. I know I've run over a bit. 
They say around here that you got to give it away to keep it. I do not believe that anymore. I think the way it works is you have to give it away to even get it. The it you're looking for comes when you start giving it away. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.